Welcome to Expert Minutes. I'm John Hambone McGuire, and today my guest is Rich Castillo. Now, I am super excited to talk to Rich because having a background in music myself, being able to have a really great behind-the-scenes conversation with one of the top A&R people in the business is something that I know I could really dig my teeth into, and I think you are all going to really enjoy the conversation. Now, an A&R person, for those of you who don't know, is the secret ingredient to every one of your favorite bands. From the time you first heard music on the radio to whatever you're listening to on your MP3 player right now, the A&R person is the one that helps break that band and bring them right into your earbuds. So without further ado, Rich Castillo. So hey, Rich, how's it going today? I'm good, thank you. Really good. Thank you for um, inviting me onto this podcast. I appreciate that. I am so excited to have you on the show. You know, when Lauren told me that we were going to have a chat. I got really excited about this because my start was in music. So I feel like there's a very specific language that we're going to be able to speak to each other. And yet we're going to bring some other people into the conversation right now. So I want to ask you, you know, normally we start off the show with what did you want to be when you grew up? I want you to let me know that, but I also want you to let me know because an A&R person has a very specialized skill set. So you hear things differently than I would say the general public does. What was the first band that when you heard it, you were like, yeah, I totally get why they're the best? Well, for me, it wasn't a band, actually. I said it was Michael Jackson, <laughs> if I'm being totally honest. The first thing that I sort of connected with musically was Michael Jackson and sort of growing up. I think I watched a video of him in the Jackson 5 doing a performance um, with his brothers. I had a VHS when I was a kid that my mum had bought for me and I used to watch that a lot and for me that was the first taste of like finding music and an all-around sort of performing sort of thing that would really excite me and, and make me feel like you could be superhuman through music. And so undeniable a superstar that Michael Jackson was. What about on the ground floor? Now you are known for developing bands and finding bands you know an A&R person essentially has three jobs which is find cultivate and coach and so you are the Swiss army knife of the music industry so what was the first band that you got involved with where you're like yeah this is it I can do something with this I mean, I started off in a band this myself. I was in a group and I was so in love with the idea of it because I'd watched bands on TV and stuff like that. So I joined the band and we got going and we got a deal and stuff. And I enjoyed the process of it. So the first band I actually was involved as an A&R man, once I actually got into the business as a sort of young manager, was a group called N-Dubs. And in the UK, they were sort of a, a very big urban pop sensation group around sort of 2008 to 2011. And that was the first group where I saw them and thought, oh, my God, the potential of this could be incredible. And that's the first group I was actually hands on involved in developing and sort of taking to market. And this is a band that went on to have platinum selling sales. Yeah, we had multiple. We had a double platinum album. We had a platinum album. We sold out arenas. We got signed to Def Jam in America. We got signed to LA Reid, actually. And we did the big American deal. We got it. We had it all lined up. We did everything we could have hoped to have done around that time. We managed to sort of achieve. And that's very impressive, even more so in the late 2000s. Because I know once you cross that like 2009, 2010 space, you get to an area where people are struggling to do platinum record sales. I mean, Bruce Springsteen, they were making a big deal of it recently. His latest album, he sold, I think, 100,000 copies. And everyone's like, you did it, boss. You're the best. Yeah. <laughs> but 100,000 is the new million, right? It is, because I think people have got choice paralysis at the moment. 
I think what streaming's done is opened it right out. So before, where there's only a certain amount of slots at radio, there's only a certain amount of slots in release schedules and stuff like that. Now the release schedule is endless. And given all the sort of Spotify and Apple and all the other platforms that you can sort of release music through, it's allowed a much broader, bigger sort of landscape of music. So a lot of people who would only really hear about three or four bands a year are now hearing about a hundred a year sort of thing. So everyone's sort of spread out. So I think the whole dynamic of hearing music and how it's fed to you has totally changed. So it's meant that the ability to go to bigger sales numbers has been diluted. It's different now because I think in the 80s, 90s, early 2000s, you know, record releases were kind of similar to a film's release insofar as there was only so many slots at that theater. So only so many people could be out at a time and kind of everyone got a turn for a little bit. Whereas now the focus is really on content, content, content. So can you talk to me about how you're able to stay competitive in an ever-changing landscape? Right now, you're right. The content thing is super important and the content sort of talks to you feeding your audience constantly and allowing them to engage in what you're doing. Back in the day, I think the content was basically a music video. Whereas now with Instagram, with TikTok, with Triller, with all those other things, there's a constant sort of ability to connect with your audience. And I think a lot of the artists that really get that bit right are sort of seeing that sort of follow through into their music and how it reflect on their music releases and how well they do. The content thing for us, I mean, like, there's the song which will always be king. The song will always do the bulk of the work for everything and, and anything. But next to that, the content and the ability to feed your audience constantly and cleverly and creatively has probably never been more important. There are people that I think music is not that amazing even, and the content's kept them alive and kept them visible. And people care because they've got characters. And then you've got other people like Lewis Capaldi, who's another example of someone who's sort of constantly on Twitter and constantly on social media and actually could have been a comedian who just happens to have an amazing voice and nails the songs sort of thing, who leans right in. And I'd argue that the content side of it has been a significant part of why he's worked. So for you, is it now that the song is that needle in the haystack that you're looking for? Because you know, part of what you do is finding the talent. And how do you differentiate among all of the talent out there that's putting out so much content on Instagram, on Twitter, on every streaming service known to man? Exactly. So for us, sort of having all this sort of content and understanding of Instagram and the sort of social media awareness that an artist sort of needs in 2020, it's significant. And like you said, the point of difference generally is them having a song that sort of pulls that together or a moment with a piece of music that connects everything. And I think the music is the thing that sort of allows the content and all the other sort of clever, creative social media stuff to work around new artists. And I think more so than ever, the music is the only thing that can really differentiate people. And so with that, how do you coach that out of people now? Now that they got that one song that's gotten your attention, what's the move to get them to expand on that and stay true to that vision? From my side, I think... It's about chemistry. It's about sort of looking at how that song came about, tapping into that energy and finding other people in that space, other producers and writers that understand that sonic and understand that world and matching them up and finding people that... My role is to sort of find characters that can work with the character, which is the artist. So I find sort of experienced musicians, I find producers and writers, I look around the world and try and find people that are going to really harness the magic that that person has already started and magnify it properly. 
in a way that is, keeps its integrity. That's amazing. And it's also very interesting because while all this is happening, you know, for those listening at home who might not be familiar with it, the A&R person is always the most competitive person at the label <laughs> because you're always chasing that hit. I was an intern at A&M Records oh, right before the Seagram. Oh, yeah, a long time ago, man. <laughs> it's been a minute. But this is before the Seagram's thing happened. Like I was right there as the deal was going down, and I was working with an amazing woman who I'm not going to mention because I, I don't know what names are in the industry anymore, and I don't want to bring it up. Yeah, yeah. That's fine. You know, I'd like to keep that for myself. However, she'd broken a major band, like a band that was like bigger than any other band at the time. And I'm like, this is great. You did it. You are the best. And she's like, I'm the best for now. I have to find the next big thing. Like, <laughs> you can't rest on your laurels in A&R. You're constantly chasing that hit. So what motivates you to stay on the ball? I mean, you've done it from actually being in A&R to now running a&R departments and having run A&R departments at different companies over the years, what motivates you to get out there and find the next big thing? I think for me, like every time we have a hit or a moment with a song, I call it like oxygen. I've got some oxygen so I can breathe for a second. <laughs> but as, soon as, you, as soon as your lungs are full again and you breathe out again, which is the release of a song, you need some more oxygen. And I think the lifeblood of, I mean, hopefully you do so well in A&R that you get to run the company and then you sort of have a, a bunch of younger A&Rs and younger kids coming in. You can do the sort of running around section of it all, but you sort of add your knowledge and experience to that to sort of help navigate the company a bit. But I think as an A&R man who's come through the ranks, for me, what keeps me going is the good of having a hit and the sort of things that that brings to your life in terms of stability and security and sort of the pro-esque and the sort of all the good things that sort of having a decent paycheck and like starting a family and all those things are all related to having a hit record. So I'm super competitive anyway. I like to win stuff. I love the challenge of sort of winning deals and deals wise, I've always been able to sort of pretty much close nearly all the things that I've sort of chased down. I say nearly, we don't do them all, but if you've had a taste of having a hit record in a moment, it's super addictive and you want to taste that again. You know, they say that is the same for people who perform in any kind of live manner. There's never a higher high than the applause of a crowd. And then for people who are on the professional side of everything, there's never a higher high than actually tasting that success. And then not even tasting it for the first time, being able to consistently replicate that success, which is something that you've done throughout your entire career. You know, you mentioned breathing before, like getting that breath of air, right? Moving up the chain and then running A&R departments, you know, in 2019, you became the senior director of A&R at Sony ATV. So now you're in charge of teaching other people how to breathe, right? So can you describe that? Yeah, totally. I mean, coming through the ranks and sort of wiggling my way through the system sort of thing, I took on a lot of understanding. I'm sort of quite interested in politics. And there is a little bit of sort of politicking in sort of how you climb and understanding sort of characters, dealing with relationships with people and knowing sort of how to work as a team, how to get the best out of a team and like going to war with your team against other teams. And when I was at Polydor, like the A&R team was so close together, we were playing football together, we were going to the pub together. When there was a deal to be had, we'd all pull in together and try and help each other to do that. And we'd like go to war with other people in order to get records done. We'd sort of take fun in going to a studio late at night or on the weekend, going to someone's city in Glasgow or somewhere around the country where we like to do what other people, what we think most people won't sort of thing. And at Atlantic now, we've got a brilliant culture of like, we've got two of the 
best sort of like we've got the guy who's, who's developed Ed Sheeran as the, as the president, who's the guy who founded Developer and has done the whole sort of run at it, who's amazing. And we've got another president in a lady called Brian, who's incredible, who's done all the Team Bandit records and loads of big records and sold tons and tons of records. So we've got a real gang and a sort of like a real sort of team effort to try and make sure we win deals and we're aggressive and we're first and we're early. And for me, I've learned so much along the path that for me, developing young people is probably equal to breaking a band to me or an act because in developing a person right you get multiple chances at breaking bands as well so I figure if you develop them right and you sort of install the right ethics work ethics and allow them to be as creative as possible but also make sure their work rate and their sort of ability to be accountable is there as well I think you can you develop the next bunch of stars that help keep the company going and we all win. Definitely. I mean, I know from experience that you can't teach work ethic, but you can lead by example. Yeah, I agree with that. That's a really, really, really good point. Right. And with that, would you say that being around so many people and one of the things that we've gotten throughout many episodes of this podcast is that people who are working at a higher level always have a great team surrounding them. And that team not only elevates them and they all rise together, it invigorates them and it lights that fire every single day. It does. It does. It really does. So as a team leader, do you find that you're learning just as much from your team as they're learning from you? Absolutely. I might be learning a bit more, to be fair, because I have multiple people on my team. So I've got different characters. You can see how people work better and how they don't. And you can take on board how they do their stuff, too. So maybe I get more out of it than they do. I also help people sort of with their career and help them sort of see how I work and operate um, to help them as well. So I think it works both ways. And I think also, even when you're hiring young people and stuff like that, I think because of how I sort of operate and how the team operates, you tend to lean towards a certain type of person as well. So it sort of saves you the work ethic thing you spoke to in terms of being taught and just having it. We're naturally attracted to people that have a similar sort of mindset as we do. All right. So with that, what advice would you give to someone trying to break into the business? My advice to someone breaking into the business is I would start by already trying to do the job and I would try and simulate what that job is and get into the process of doing it day to day. Like when I was trying to get into a and I was going through my favorite music, I was looking at the credits, I was looking at who wrote what, and I kept seeing similar names pop up. I managed to find out who their manager was. I started doing the digging. I started, in my head, I was already doing the role. So my advice to people that want to get into the role, I would say try and live your life in that role before you've got the role so you can speak to it when you're having a conversation about acquiring the job. I think there's nothing more sort of needed than preparing properly. And for people who always break into any business, people are always looking to give them advice. So what is the best piece of advice that you've ever gotten pertaining to your life or the business that you're in? I used to work for a guy called Jonathan Shallot, who's quite an established manager in the UK. And the first thing he told me around artists was that we're managing artists. The only thing that's definite is that we're going to get sacked. It's rather when than if. So while we're still working with these people, we've got to try and make sure we achieve as much success as possible, but it will end. So you just don't want to look back and regret not doing it the best you can. And that's the best advice I think that I've ever heard when it comes to A&R, because it's honestly the truest thing. Yeah, it's going to end, but you've got to make sure you deliver while you're there and know that it will end at some point and don't be under any illusion. But while you're there, it's really weird, but I always think about when I stop and what I've done by the time I stop. And I want what I've done to outlive me. So I need to make sure that what I do while I'm here is leaning towards something great. Well, speaking of legacy, what is the achievement that you're most proud of? 
What I'm most proud of is when I managed the group end-ups, my most proud thing is that I went from an under-18 sort of club night, which is where you have kids that are under-18 in a nightclub in the daytime having a party, of a capacity of around 100, to selling out arenas in the UK with the same band. Now, going on that journey is what I'm most proud of because we went from just some loose ideas to selling out arenas. And for me, because I was involved in not just A&R and involved in the production and the staging and the budgets and right across the board, for me, that's possibly my proudest achievement. And next to that, I'm very proud of the fact that I'm still in the business. I'm on my 15th, 16th year in, but I've never gone a year without doing more than the previous year. And hopefully that will continue. So what is next for Rich Castillo? My target is always to win Grammy. It's always in my motivation. And that's what I'm in the middle of doing now. So my benchmark is I need to be winning Grammys. Once I've done the Grammy run, I want to sort of oversee companies like full-on labels properly. Rich, thanks so much for joining us today and having a chat with me. Thank you for your time. I really appreciate it. Thanks again to Rich for coming on the show today. And special shout out to all the A&R people out there working hard to break our favorite bands. Thanks again for listening to another episode of Expert Minutes. I'm John Hambone McGuire. And remember, if your day job's not your dream job, keep hustling. Hey nerds, I'm Sarah, the Paper Nerd, and if you've ever wondered what goes into that greeting card you just sent or received, well, quite a lot. Get your paper fix on the paper fold where I host an enchanting mix of personalities and players all nerding out on my favorite topic, stationery. From the designs of our snail mail communications to the precious space created when two people correspond, there's a lot to cover. So come grab a seat in the stationery community's only five-star paper salon, The Paper Fold, now part of the Evergreen Podcast Network.